This morning we consider and continue our Advent series on Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Jesus, his various sonships. Last week we considered how he is the son of Abraham, the one who came to fulfill God's promise to Abraham and bring blessing to all the world and reverse the curse of sin. This morning we consider his role as the son of David. Uh, even in our scripture readings this morning, we saw how that title is so closely intertwined with the idea of him being the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God who comes to uh, bring the kingdom of God into its fullest uh, expression. So this morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 1 and we'll read verses uh, 6b through verse 11, so the second half of verse 6 through verse 11. And we'll consider how Jesus and his genealogy not only comes from the line of David, but is uh, greater than his father David and comes to bring the fullest expression of God's covenant with David into the world. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, the sentence beginning, David the king. Let's give our attention now, brothers and sisters, these are the words of the living God. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And may God now add his blessing to our reading and hearing of his word this morning. One of the things I'm learning as a father is that I need to be very careful with the two very dangerous words, I promise. Those are dangerous words to say as a father. And I'm learning that it's often better for me to simply say, yes, potentially we might do that. Or maybe I'll be able to go do that with you uh, to my daughter, Nora, instead of saying, yes, honey, I promise we'll do that. For a child to hear that statement uh, is very powerful. And maybe you can remember times with your own fathers growing up when maybe dad promised to do something and then for a variety of reasons he couldn't follow through on it. And how crushing that was to you and your young uh, soul and your young mind. It was hard to fathom. Well, dad, you promised. You said we would go play ball after you were done working today. You said you'd make it to my game. You said you'd come to my recital and you didn't come. You didn't follow through. You promised. It's heartbreaking for children when fathers make promises and then don't follow through on them. Dads, future dads, just a little lesson there. Be very careful with the words. I promise it's way, way better to simply say, maybe we'll get to do that. We'll see. Rather than to stamp it with those very dangerous words, I promise. God had made promises to his people. He made some pretty outlandish promises to his people. He had made promises through King David to bless the people of Israel through him, to preserve David's sons, to preserve David's dynasty, and through David's dynasty, to bless the people of God. And he had promised certain things like, I will never forsake the line of David. I won't put you away the way that I put away Saul and his lineage and his dynasty. 
God made elaborate promises to David. We heard some of them this morning as we read from the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, the specific part in Scripture where God makes a covenant with King David. But there's other places too, and there's uh, expansion on the promises that God made to David. God says in Psalm 78, verses 70 and 71, that he called David from the sheepfold, from shepherding sheep, and God says, I called you out of that to come and shepherd my people Israel. And through David's leadership of Israel, all of God's people would be blessed. God promised in 2 Samuel 7 that through David, God would provide a home for his people, a dwelling place where they would be safe and where they would be free from oppression. You remember from our sermon series we just finished in Ruth, we looked at the time of the judges and how that was a very bad time for the people of God. And increasingly, uh, every time they did worse and worse, God would send enemies against them to rule over them and oppress them so that they might repent and seek the Lord. Well, God says through David, I'm going to provide a safe place for you where you will be free from oppression. That will never happen to you again. God said he would build up David's house. And that through David's house, through the son of David, that son of David would then build God's house. And God had promised to David that even if his descendants sinned against the Lord, he would chastise them, he would discipline them, but he would not forsake them. He would not cast them off forever. And in fact, God said to David, your kingdom and your throne will be established forever. All of these wonderful promises, all of these things that God has said to David, I promise. I promise this. I promise that. And yet we see how David, by his own sin, and David's sons, by their own sin, have troubled God and troubled the people of Israel and even troubled themselves, troubled their own house. If you know the story of David, you know that even though he is a man after God's own heart, he is not a man without fault. He sins. When life is hard for him, before the kingship, before the throne is his, he's faithful. He's consistent. He's honest with the Lord. He walks faithfully with God. But then when he gets in power, as so often happens, uh, he starts thinking of himself a little bit more. He sins in a number of different ways. You might think of his, his biggest, most well-known sin, his sin with Bathsheba. In fact, a, a sin that is recorded for us in Matthew's genealogy. Notice what Matthew says. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Bathsheba. Well, why doesn't he call her Bathsheba? Because he wants to accentuate the fact that David conceives Solomon by that sinful relationship. She's not just Bathsheba. She's the woman who had been the wife of Uriah, who David had killed on the field of battle to try to cover up his own sin. David sinned against the Lord in taking the census right at the end of his life. He displays his lack of trust in God, and he tries to count up the number of his own troops to see if he could trust in his own armies instead of trusting in the Lord. And God troubles Israel because of that. God punishes Israel because of that. The people that were supposed to be blessed through David are punished because of David's transgression and his sin. All throughout the line of David, there is sin present. Solomon is a sinner. Solomon, that first son of David who becomes king after him. 
and in many ways expands David's kingdom and builds the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, he also sins against the Lord. 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 13, he takes many pagan wives. He marries unbelievers. And he doesn't just build a temple for the true God. He builds all kinds of places of worship for false gods. Solomon, although he is arguably the wisest man who ever lived, uh, in his sin, he becomes a fool. And he acts the fool. David's sons, all throughout, they express the same failure. You go through that lineage from David to the exile in Babylon that Matthew gives us, and you see that although there are some good kings intermixed in there, by and large, it is a story of moral compromise, sinful leaders, ungodly, wicked men in power who fall far short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. And finally, God judges his people. And he kicks them out of the land he gave them. And he sends them into exile in Babylon. That terrible event that Matthew records for us at the end of verse 11. About the time his, they were carried away to Babylon. And at this point, God's people are wrestling with this tension. Because what did God do way back with David? He said the dangerous words. He said, I promise. And he stamped it. And he stamped certain statements with that stamp of, I promise. I promise that David will bless my people and that through David, I will bless my people. I promise that through David, you will be safe and never oppressed again. And no foreigner will come and dominate you again like they used to in the time of Judges. I promise that even if David's sons sin against me, I won't forsake them. I won't cast you off like I cast off Saul. And yet here's a moment where God sends judgment against his people, and it seems like he does everything he said he wouldn't do. It seems like, although God said, I promise, he goes back on every one of his promises. If you have your Bible open, I encourage you to keep it open, but turn back with me to your Old Testament, to the book of Psalms, and look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a psalm of a man named Ethan the Ezraite. As far as I know, it's the only psalm we have in Scripture from this man, Ethan. And Ethan the Ezraite is wrestling with this tension. He's wrestling with this problem that God has promised lots of things, and it doesn't look like he's actually done them. Psalm 89. Look at the very beginning. Ethan starts, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. God, your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. What does God say? I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. He goes back to those promises God made to David. Those places where God said to David and to Israel, I promise. And he rehearses them and he goes through the faithfulness of God for many verses, it's a long psalm. He rehearses all of the things that God had said he would do. Jump ahead to verse 30, Psalm 89, verse 30. He goes back to that statement God had made. If David's sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and don't keep my commandments, I'll punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness... I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, 
nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. God makes all these promises, and Ethan is rehearsing them, and he is speaking them back to God, in effect, all the way through verse 37. And then you have that word there, Selah. Selah is a word that comes up a lot in the Psalms, and we're not exactly sure what it means or what it's meant to indicate, uh, but most likely it indicates a pause, a break in the thought process. It's like when you're singing a song or you're telling a story and you sort of pause for dramatic effect and let people really think about what you've just said. And for 37 verses, Ethan has rehearsed God's promises and God's faithfulness. And then he has that word, Selah. Okay, pause. What's the problem? Verse 38. Speaking to God, he says, but you have cast off. You said you wouldn't cast us off, and yet you have cast off. You have abhorred us. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You've broken down all his hedges. You've brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He's a reproach to his neighbors. You've exalted his adversaries. You've made all his enemies rejoice. Verse 45, the days of his youth you have shortened and you've covered him with shame. Ethan says, God, you made all these promises. You said you would do all these things and you swore that you'd never go back on them. And yet, here we are. And it sure looks like you have. It sure looks like you have forgotten to be faithful. It looks like you have been that kind of dad from the stereotypical family movie where you have said, I promise, and you have gone back on your promise. You said you would do something, and you've not done it. You said you would never do something, and you have done it. You've broken us down. You said we'd never be oppressed again. Well, here we are, being oppressed again. You said we would never be defeated by our enemies again, and here we are, in bondage to other enemies again. You said you would bless us through David, and instead you've broken down his kingdom, and you've renounced your covenant with him. They're wrestling with that. They're wrestling with that tension of God has said he would do something and it sure doesn't look like he's doing it. I wonder if any of you here today have wrestled with that kind of feeling. God, you said you would bless my family. You said you would be faithful. You said if I instructed my children in the ways of God that when they grew old, they would not depart from them. You said that if I sought you in my marriage, uh, you would bless my marriage with love and with respect. You said you would bless the people who turn to you. And yet we've turned to you and we sure don't look very blessed. You said all these things, God, and it doesn't look like you're actually doing them. It's kind of what Advent is all about. It's about that feeling, that tension of looking for promises from God that he has made that don't seem to be happening. Not yet. And how wonderful it is then when Jesus Christ comes into the world to be able to trace his genealogy back to King David. To say that when this baby is born in that pathetic, weak, poor manger in Bethlehem, that that little child born to destitute parents, to a mother who is in some sense, cloaked with shame because of the nature of her conception, 
to a father who's just a lowly carpenter, to a, a family who is so poor of means that when they come to offer sacrifice, they have to offer the sacrifice for the poorest of Israel, and they can't even get a room in the inn. But that little child born to Mary and his adopted father Joseph, that little child is a son of David. We go back to that question of why should we care about the genealogies? Here's a reason why. Because Jesus Christ coming into the world, he comes as one of David's sons. And those promises that God made to Israel through David that look like God has gone back on them and they look like they have failed. You think about exile happens 587. Almost 600 years before Jesus Christ comes into the world. And for hundreds of years, almost three times as long as our own nation has been in existence, the people of God are waiting and waiting. And why does it look like God isn't doing what He said He would do? Why does it look like God's promises are failing? And then finally, at just the right moment, here comes Jesus Christ. Here comes the Son of David who will do what David failed to do. Who will do what Solomon failed to do. Who will do what all the sons of David throughout the history of God's people failed to do. Here is a son of David so great that as we read in our Gospel reading this morning, quoting from Psalm 110, even David himself calls him Lord. Fathers don't normally call their sons lords. But this son of David is so great that even his father David must bow down to him and call him Lord. He is the shoot, the stem that springs out of Jesse. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. He is the child who, as we read in our Advent candle reading, Isaiah 9, verse 7, he's the child who will sit on David's throne and whose government and peace will never end. Here's a Messiah, a Savior, who will bring about God's kingdom and provide all the blessings that David never did and never could. In Jesus Christ, God's people have the fulfillment of those promises. The answer is given. The answer comes. God's promises were long in coming, but they did not fail. The people of God had to wait a long time for that promise to David to come to fruition, but it came. Friends, don't lose hope just because God's promises are long in coming. They are long in coming sometimes. God sometimes makes us wait quite a long time. But His promise is always sure. His promise is always certain. Jesus Christ, the Son of David, comes into the world and He comes as a king. He comes as a king and He reigns as king today. We saw it in our confession of faith from Philippians chapter 2 that by his death and his burial and his resurrection, by his work of salvation, he has more than earned the right to be the ultimate son of David. He has more than earned the right to be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And God has highly exalted him and seated him at his right hand. That's what we confess regularly when we use the Apostles' Creed. Right? We don't just say he ascended into heaven. He ascended into heaven to what? Sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Well, what's he doing there? He's reigning as king. He's ruling over all things. He is king of kings and lord of lords, the book of Revelation calls him. Revelation 1 verse 5 calls him the ruler over the kings of the earth. 
We live in a world that's full of all kinds of different governments. We've got autocratic dictatorships. You've got hermit kingdoms like North Korea. Uh, you've got democratic republics like our own, socialist republics, people's republics. You've got all kinds of different governments in the world. But above every other government in this world, there is one universal supreme government, and it is a monarchy. And on that throne of that monarchy sits Jesus Christ, your Savior. He rules over all rulers of the world. He rules over everything that happens in heaven and on earth. Nothing that ever happens in your life happens apart from the sovereign will of your king. We are Americans. We don't like the thought of the divine right of kings or the absolute right of kings. We sort of inherently reject that. We said, we, we handled that in 1776, thank you very much. We won't have any kings. Well, you have to have at least one king. And he is an absolute monarch. And he rules absolutely with no compromise. He doesn't need democratic processes to make his decisions. He's not a mere figurehead like King Charles III. He is a real reigning king with real power and real plans. And his plans always come to pass. When he makes a promise, even if it's long in coming, it will surely come to pass. Jesus is reigning. He's reigning right now. And all people in all the earth must submit to him. Every knee has to bow. Every tongue has to confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Psalm 2 warns about what happens to even the mighty men of the earth, kings of the earth who refuse to submit to Jesus. What happens to them? Psalm 2 says that he breaks them. He dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He breaks them. He throws them down and he exalts someone different. Psalm 72 verse 11. We'll sing it in just a few moments, but it calls on kings of the earth to come and worship this king, to give him gifts, that, that thing that we see in the Magi, the three wise men coming to bow down to the, the, the toddler Jesus and give him gifts. Uh, there's a reason that the tradition came about that we think of them as kings because Psalm 72 speaks of kings of the earth coming and bringing presents to him, uh, doing obeisance to him, bowing to him, worshiping him. And that's not just an example, that's a calling. That's what all people in the world are called to do. And so Christian, the, the question I must ask you this morning is whether that characterizes your life. If he is your king, and, and you want to call him that, and you want to delight in the blessings of Christmas and, and Jesus Christ coming into the world as the son of David, are you serving him as your king? Are you following him as your king? It's one thing to call him king. It's another thing to actually live as if he were your king. Jesus asked in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? God asked his people in Malachi chapter 1, you, you say that I'm a father, you say that I'm a master, but if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my obedience? One of the worst things that we have happening in our American churches today is we want to say one thing about God, that he is Lord, we want to call Jesus Lord, we want to call him king, we want to celebrate his birth, we'll sing all the Christmas carols about him being our king, but then we don't want to live as if it were true. We want him to be king over here, right? Jesus, you can have this little part of my life where you can be king. 
but I want the rest of it for myself. Friends, he's an absolute monarch, and he won't tolerate any holding back, any space from him. All of your life must be laid on the altar for him. All of your life must be laid down in service to Jesus the King. Jesus said, John 15, verse 14, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. See, it's one thing to be friends with a person. It's another thing to be friends with the king. If I was friends with King Charles III, uh, we could be friends, but that would carry certain requirements of me, right? I have to obey him. I have to submit to him. If I was a British citizen, I would have to honor him as my king, even if I am his friend. You are friends of Jesus Christ, but you've got to remember that you're friends with the king. Serve him. Bow down to him. Live your life for him. Ask for his gift of the Spirit, because you can't do this without his Holy Spirit. Trust him to give you the Spirit, and then walking in the Spirit, submit your life to Jesus Christ. Don't just call him Lord, but do the things that he says. Trust him. Trust that he will actually do what he said he will do. Psalm 72 speaks about the Son of David who's going to come, and it has some really, again, outlandish promises, some promises that sound way too big uh, to really believe in. Let me just read a few of them. You don't necessarily need to turn there. But Psalm 72, uh, verse 4. Listen to some of the promises God makes about what the Son of David will do. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. You and I live in a world where there's lots of would-be oppressors. Lots of people who want to tell you how to live your life and dominate you and rule over you. And God says he will break in pieces those who oppress his people. Do you actually trust him to do that? Or do you live in constant fear of what the news tells you? Or what the, what the people in elite places are trying to do? He'll deliver the needy when he cries. He'll redeem their life from oppression and violence and their blood shall be precious in his sight. Do you believe that your blood is precious in the sight of Jesus? Do you believe that even in those moments of suffering, when, when God brings you through a hard time, that your suffering, the tears you shed, go into his bottle, the blood you may shed, figuratively or literally, is precious in his sight? Do you believe that? Do you trust him in that? And finally, worship him. Psalm 72 calls all nations to come and worship the son of David. His name shall endure forever, the psalmist says, and all nations shall call him blessed. Worship him. Give him praise. Give him glory. And do so even if his promise looks like it's long in coming. I want to close this morning with a, a quote from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Uh, perhaps some of you may know it. But Habakkuk is a prophet who is uh, wrestling with this tension of God's goodness in the face of evil times and evil struggles. And he's crying out for God's deliverance. And God says, I'm actually going to make it a lot harder for you, Habakkuk. And Habakkuk goes through this struggle of how do I trust in a God like that? And at the end of his uh, little prophetic book in the Old Testament, only three chapters, but he has this wonderful hymn of faith in God. Listen to what he says. Listen to Habakkuk and pray that this would be the cry of faith from your own heart. Prophet Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 17, he says to God, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, 
Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high hills. That's what faith looks like, friends. God, whatever you do, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will joy in the God of my salvation. May you have joy in the Lord Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Father in God, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we thank you for this blessing of your word. Father, we ask that as we have heard your word, that you'd put it deep in our hearts, that it may uh, take root in us and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, that we might live lives transformed by the Holy Spirit, transformed by the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation. And Lord, that we might become those who live for your glory alone. And Lord, who exalt King Jesus, our son of David and David's greater Lord. Lord, all these things we ask in his name. Amen.